0: I'm Kira, I'm an alcoholic. And through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and a Big Dose of God, I've been sober since February 24th, 2000. And, um, you know, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 19 years old, and my greatest fear when I got here was that You know, getting sober means I'm going to get old, and that I'm going to be boring, and life is going to suck. And uh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And what happened is when I when I came into this program, I just out of luck got hooked up with this group of young people in (laughs) (laughs) it. And man, they were crazy. We used to always have bonfires and, and one of us had a copy of the anarchist cookbook and we'd play with that from time to time. And, um, you know, ranchers have chased us off their property because we were having firework wars on their land. And my favorite activity, though, always was is we would take ropes and we'd tie a mattress so that it was being dragged behind a truck and we would ride that mattress through town on the roads, you know, running from cops if need be. Until the mattress started smoking and sparking, and then we'd go get another. And what I saw with these people, you know, is that, is that they're young, they're laughing, they're having a good time, they're sober, and they're still getting chased by the cops. And, <laughs> and that is what I want. <laughs> um you know when I you know, when I look back on it, I have all these misperceptions of my life and that horrible fear that, you know, drugs and alcohol are exciting and they're God, I don't know what I would do without them. And when I look back to, you know, the end of the near the end of my drinking days, I was living in this crap hole house. I was not leaving the house anymore because I was depressed, you know, and, and I just sat there drinking all day long. For entertainment I watched the same. Beavis and Butthead video over and over and over. And my social contact, because my friends wouldn't hang out with me anymore, was that I went and I was very frequent on the Internet chat rooms. And that is what is so exciting that, you know, I can't give up drinking over. <laughs> um, I, I don't come from alcoholic stock. My parents... <laughs> My parents are painfully good people. They, you know, they, they, they've never smoked pot. My mom has never had a cigarette. cigarette They don't drink to get drunk. Um, and they both have this really strong faith in God, you know, based on their religion. And I was raised, you know, growing up that God loves me, God forgives me. And throughout my life, from that upbringing, I've never had that, that feeling that, you know, that I'm going to go to hell for what I'm doing or that God hates me or he's mad at me. It's just... It's just that, you know, I feel like God is disappointed in the way that my dad is disappointed when I'm causing harm to myself. I took my first drink when I was 14 years old. It was the, the one day out of the school year that we were allowed to bring beverages to class. And this, <laughs> <laughs> you could <can> see why. <laughs> and this, this really hot guy sitting next to me who I wanted to go out on a one-night date with, he um, <laughs> he said he was going to bring alcohol, and so I wanted to impress him. And so I brought alcohol in my drink, and, and I was the only one that brought it, and, um, and I was drinking it. And, you know, it's that feeling that I really don't have to explain to, to most alcoholics, that the warmth goes down and everything is okay, I'm comfortable, you like me, I'm funny, and I'm sexy as hell <laughs> and, uh, in eighth grade. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's, that, that, that really hot guy asked me, you know, oh, can I have some of your alcohol? And I just shh, knew. <laughs> because my alcohol, you know, it's like right out of the gate. My alcohol is more important than you and you. It doesn't matter how hot you are. You don't get my alcohol. Um, and I, I just started drinking right away. I was never a normal drinker who passed into the realm of alcoholism. I was an alcoholic right away. I, you know, the very next morning, I went into my dad's uh, liquor cabinet, and I made those mixes that 14-year-olds make of five or six different, you know, hard alcohols all mixed in together. And at least you don't know it tastes bad. But... <laughs> And I I started drinking it before I got on the school bus the next morning, and that became my routine. Every morning before I got on the bus, I'd I'd get drunk. And once, you know, I finally got caught with that, and so I'd start smoking pot, because nobody can smell pot. (laughs) And it worked. And, uh, you know, when I was a little kid, I said, you know, yeah, when I'm 21 or something, I'll drink, but I'll never do drugs. Drugs are bad. But you know, once I started, once I had that first drink, the whole everything changed. Um, I'll, you know, I would do anything to make myself feel better because I didn't know how bad I used to feel. Um, I'm not even like a cool alcoholic. Um, I've never run cocaine from Colombia. I've never shot anybody for their drugs on the street. Um, I'm a wee- I'm one of those weasel types. If. You know, I'm the one that's sitting in the school bathroom with the little half-joint of hash that's been slobbered all over by somebody. And I'm just smoking it. And I'm the one that goes into the, you know, the Osco drug and goes walking up and down the the little drug aisles. And I start reading, you know, taking down all the packages and finding out, you know, what are the side effects? What are the side effects? And, you know, asthma medications I am in big favor of. (laughs) I, um... I don't like to pay for drugs. I am a serious money hoarder. I um, I go for cheap drugs and I go for free drugs. Hence, you know the ga- the gas stations and the uh, OSCO, because I can steal those. And the free drugs, you know, I find out which groups of people to hang out with that have the dope. And and I got this one boyfriend because he always had dope, and um, he had a problem with showering. He had a fear, so <laughs> just <laughs> just kind of keep a distance. But, uh, I am proud to say he was the only seventh grader in my school with a full beard. (laughs) Oh, that was great. You know, I remembered, um, a few years later, he, he, him and a bunch of his buddies, they killed some guy over some chick and I remember when I read that, like, a good person, the first thought is, oh, God, that sucks for that guy, or that's really sad. But my first thought is, why hasn't anyone killed anybody over me yet? <laughs> but, <laughs> um, you know, I, in the beginning there, I, I, I drank a lot. I drank every chance I had. I got really good at stealing. Um, I am, I've got very sticky little fingers I, I, you know, I would go into the, the store that was um, just a couple blocks from my house, and they only had wine. But I could walk down the wine aisle, and I could just do it without even stopping, just do do doo, breeze through. And when I walked out the other end, I had one, two, or three bottles of wine all tucked in my pants. And um, and I drank that. And I, I also drank a lot of hard alcohol, and I don't know where I got it. So I, w- I was obviously doing something. Um. <laughs> But, you know, the good thing about drugs that, that makes them a lot easier to find when you're 14 years old is because the drug dealer's not carding you and asking, are you 21? Um, there's not a lot of morals there. One, you know, the, most of the time when I did the dope, it was, it was just whatever I could get my hands on. There wasn't, like, the drug that got me in trouble, but there was one drug that I finally, you know, got got in trouble with, or kind of, uh I have a thing for speed, and it's not—it's not cool speed. It's gas station speed, ephedrine, and I—I I started taking that because I love the way it feels when you take your hands off your head and there's electrical handprints still on your head, and <laughs> and I just started taking that, and it was so fast because that I just you know I was—I'm a speed drinker, you know, and a speed drug user. I don't just like drink throughout the day people talk about like hanging out with their buddies on the beach or boating or fishing or something all day long drinking beer I can't do that because I just pound it down as fast as I can to get drunk as fast as I can and then I'm passed out before the party <laughs> and uh, I don't know I take as much as I can get it was just a short period of time after I started taking the uh, the mini fens that I was taking 130, 140 pills a day just to, just to be normal and I used to, you know, I, look, I used to look at my friends in school because for some reason, like, 50% of my friends were, like, really straight-edge type people. And I would look at them, and I'd just be like, you know, you woke up this morning, and you brushed your teeth. And then perhaps you took a shower, and now you're in class. And sometimes you're asleep in class, but sometimes you're not. And I can't do that. Like, I, I couldn't fathom how to get up and function without, you know, without taking something first. It just became this foreign thing that I couldn't comprehend anymore. And that kind of, you know, after a while, that started to scare me, and it, it scared me that I, that I couldn't get off the speed, and I kept trying and trying, and I could go three days before the withdrawals just made me too crazy in the head, and I'd, I'd go running back for it to the gas station. LAUGHTER um, you know, I also got a job at a veterinary clinic when I was in high school. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I always considered myself a really good worker. You know, the first year I worked there, I never stole a thing. I, <laughs> I'm high on speed, which means I am busy, and I am getting things done, and I'm, and once everything's done, once the dogs are cared for, everything's clean, then I'm on, the, on my hands and knees scrubbing the floor with straight bleach, until I'm the one coughing up blood, <sighs> and um, I don't know. I guess I probably wasn't a very good worker overall, though, because after that first year, a buddy and my uh, buddy and I we decided to go to the narcotic lockbox and uh, open it up and see what goodies were inside. And um, it wasn't tough. Veterinary clinics are way different than medical hospitals. The key for the lockbox was sitting right next to the lockbox. <laughs> And they, they didn't have to keep track of anything but euthanasia fluid. And, um, and you know, we dipped in there, and, and there was a, this gallon jug of this codeine mixture. And so he took a syringe out, and he, he dealt out, you know, what a 150-pound cocker spaniel would take, and we each... <laughs> <laughs> and we took it <laughs> and it did, not, it did not do a thing nothing so the next day I went back and I took out a dose that a 2,000 pound Labrador would take <laughs> that did something and I just I grew in love with that doggy dope is good <laughs> and it's free and I just would keep going back, and, and I, I got to, you know, figuring out all the different things. I, I had a little pill bag that I brought with me everywhere anyway, and so I would just go in there, and I'd start filling it up, and I'd have, like, the white pills and the yellow pills and the blue pills, and, and I didn't know what they were. I mean, now I could tell you what they were, but at the time I didn't know. I just knew, you know, take these to kind of calm down. Take these if you want to be happy. And, um, and then the, the codeine jug. I, you know, I never understood how my boss did not notice that they kept having to buy more. And the dogs, dogs don't take a lot of codeine. <laughs> I also started going through just like the regular pharmacy um, and uh, in the vet clinic, and, and I'd be taking all these pills again, and then I'd write down all the names, and I'd go home to this, compu- this CD program I had to look up, you know, what does this drug do? What are the side effects? Is it nervousness, dizziness, tiredness? I like those. <laughs> And, I, I, you know, I'm just eating these pills by the handful, and I'm eating, like, I'm probably eating doggy steroids and doggy <laughs> antibiotics. And, you know, I just don't care. I don't know what I'm taking. I'm just taking. Um, you know, uh, I eventually, in sobriety, went back to that vet clinic to make amends. And, you know, I was so scared. That was, that was the scariest amends I've had to make. Because when I got there, you know, I had remembered my, my bosses were very high-stress people. And I got there, and so, you know, one day, things would be really bad at the clinic, and the other day, things would be really nice. And so I was just praying that I got there on a really nice day. And I did. I was very lucky. And I went there, and I, I laid out, these are the drugs I think I took, um, maybe dosages, I don't know. and But it was, it was a lot of money's worth. And... Um, you know, and she just told me, well, I respect that you've been here. I respect that you've done this. I had no idea you'd stolen it. Um, I will give you a call when I talk to the other people, and we'll find out what to do with you. And, uh, and you know, before I'd gone in there, I had somebody with me. Um, this is back in Chicago. I had someone with me, and I had given them directions. This is how to get up to O'Hare Airport. These are all the phone numbers you need. This is where we're staying. Because I'm looking at felony narcotics, theft, or whatever you would call it. And, um, you know, but, but my old boss, she never called me. And, uh, and so I was feeling, oh, <laughs> I'm saving thousands of dollars. But my sponsor reminded me that that's not my money and that I need to, you know, donate it somewhere. And so I've been sending these tiny little checks at a time to the Humane Society back out there where I grew up. And I will probably have that debt paid in 20 years, I believe, <laughs> how things are going. But um you know, I just remember the way that I was just such a slime. I had this one boyfriend and and I don't I don't know anymore how I felt about him. I mean, I can't call it love, but I really cared about him. He mattered to me in some so, some sort of a way. And and I, and I meant more to him than you know, than he meant to me. I was way too self-centered of that and and he used to get tired of all my dr- my drinking and my drugs because he was watching me kill myself, just like he watched his mother kill herself, and that was his reasoning. And that he asked me, you know, he said, "It's me or the drugs," and um, and you know, a respectable person would either say you, or they'd say the drugs, but I, I can't, you know, I, I want to do both, which just means I'll say you, <clears throat> but I'm going to keep doing the drugs and I'm going to keep drinking. I'm just going to get sneakier and sneakier and slimier, and just you know, railroad through you know, anybody that it takes. Um, you know, the doggy dope pretty much is what was sort of the beginning of the end for me. I finally, you know, I got to this level where it seemed like with me, you know, I mean, yeah, I've got a good tolerance, but tolerance or not, I always felt I felt like that there was this, this final limit where it, this is overdose, and you just go up and up and up and up, and that's where I did, and I would get right up in there, and... And I would just get weird. You know, I remember just one of the creepiest feelings. I, I drank a whole bunch of the Doggy Dope, and I was sitting in a restaurant with my friends, and, and I was drooling. And, uh, <coughs> and one of them asked me, how are you doing? This is a simple question, and I heard it, and I understood it, and I processed that I'm supposed to say, I'm doing great, how are you? But what came out of my mouth that I didn't know about until I heard it was, like, elephant tribe. You know, just no connection whatsoever. And I couldn't, I even tried to correct myself, and it's, it's the weirdest feeling when your brain and your mouth are just out there. But uh, a couple nights later, I did overdose officially. And, you know, my friend, uh, I had this great friend who used to just take care of me all the time. And she finally just didn't know what to do, and she dropped me off at my parents' house. And, and uh, they took me to the emergency room, and, and I don't remember much of it. I, you know, the little I remember was that I couldn't understand how to pee in a cup and that, and that I, had, you know, I, had, I was restrained, not because I was violent, but because I just couldn't understand why these IVs are in my arms. And, you know, the next thing I remember was waking up in the ICU, and, and there was my mom. She was sitting across from me, just a little lady, reading her book, and she just looked so sad. And that's, you know, the look that... That's the worst look that I can get. You know, you can get mad and scream at me all you want, but that, just that horrible, pained look in the eyes of somebody who loves you. I don't... I don't I'm not a fan of that look, personally. Um, <laughs> but I also, in that room, felt... This incredible sense of relief that something about being caught red-handed you know I am busted that maybe you know somebody else is going to get the ball in motion and maybe just maybe my life can change maybe something can happen because I am so tired of living this way Um, you know outside of when I got out of the ICU I went into treatment for a short while and then after that, I was able to stay away from drugs and alcohol for about three or four months, and, uh, and I didn't go looking for it. But the first time, you know, that, that I was in a room alone with a bottle of whiskey, and nobody would know for at least two or three days that I had drank it, I just, I just remember standing there shaking, you know, saying, you know, I shouldn't be drinking that, you know, I shouldn't drink that. And then the other part of my head is saying, well, you're going to drink in a month or a week, in a year, why don't you do it now? This is your life. You're a loser. You know, you're know you never going to be any better than this. And and I drank it, and I stayed drunk. Um, I guess they call it a runner. I don't know. But I stayed drunk um, almost every waking breath for the next four months. I would get up early in the morning, and I'd have the shakes, and I'd have to drink because of the just that, that anxiety. And I would drink, and in my speed drinking, I'd drink, pass out, get up again, drink, pass out, just go throughout my day like that, and I and I wasn't doing any drugs at this time. This is when I really came to realize that I am an alcoholic. I'm not just a drug addict. Um, I just became disgusting. I, uh, you know, I got accepted at at Purdue University, and and I wanted to do well. I mean, I had gotten great grades in high school. I had a scholarship. Purdue's got a great vet school attached. You know, in states in In school, students have a much higher acceptance rate, and that's what I wanted, and yet I lasted six weeks at Purdue. You know, I started out with the rule, you know, I'm not going to drink before 9, I'm not going to drink before 8, I'm not going to drink before 5, then noon, and then I won't go to class drunk, and within no more than two weeks, I had broken them all. I, uh, you know, I just, I had a chemistry class that, in all of those six weeks, it took me a month to go to my first class because I didn't know where the building was, and I wouldn't ask anybody. And, uh, I don't know. I just, I just, um, I already said it. I was just gross. I, uh, I started to pretty much stay in my house. I didn't, I didn't leave my house all that much anymore. And, and I was depressed. I was very depressed. And, um, I wasn't always showering regularly. I, uh, You know, there's different things that'll make me feel better about myself. And drinking and drugs make me feel better. And cutting myself make me feel better. So if the alcohol's not doing it the full job, maybe if I just do both at the same time, you know, I'll feel better. And and I'm trying that. And um, and the only times that I would really... The only real times I'd leave the house was, you know, to go get a bottle, which was daily. Um, Sometimes I would pick up uh, Taco Bell... And then the other time would be when I wanted to go find a, um, a one-date gentleman type. And, uh, and it's, it is incredible. I could never do this sober, but drunk, I can leave my house and 15 minutes later find a strange guy who doesn't care that I haven't showered in a week. <laughs> I don't have that luck anymore. I do shower. <laughs> But, um, and I also got good at, you know, damage control try, or trying, trying to establish, because I'm a blackout drinker, you know, what did I do last night? How many cigarette butts are in the ashtray? You know, did I leave the house? I can tell by that. And what are these, these little blips, you know, those little blips of memory in the middle of a blackout? And they will be like a, just a quick scene. And and some of those scenes I'd rather not have. But, um, you know, just piecing together um i came home without shoes regularly i woke up on lawns i uh you know there were times when i there was one time i woke up in a dress that i'd never seen before <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know i i woke up one day at purdue and really pissed off my sister but i woke up and the bathtub the, the bathtub and the shower were broke the, i mean the nozzles were just gone and um you know i don't know it, you know it's like i can laugh about it but at the time it sucked and it was i just remember that level of depression getting to where i wanted to die and and i didn't have a reason to live except until i would look down at my dog and i will not ditch my dog and that that was kind of the that was what got me to move out to montana to try and, you know, get back on my feet and get involved, uh, get involved in the program. And, um, and that's where I got hooked up with the underage group. You know, the first four months that I was here and that I was going to meetings, I was still on speed, and I was still drinking from time to time. I, uh, you know, so I was... I was show- I, of course, every meeting I'm showing up to, a, I, I'm on a speed. But one thing I'm really grateful for is that nobody said, you know, why don't you go home and come back when you're sober? That... Um, that I was welcome to sit there at all times and cause I don't know if I would have come back. Um, you know, the day came that I, that I got sober and nothing special happened that day. It was just one more dragging day of the pain. And, um, you know, for the first year of my sobriety, I did, I did not have a sponsor and I did not work the 12 steps and I didn't go to many meetings. I went to two or three a week. I think it was. And, um, you know, I believe the only thing that kept me sober was the young people in the program. You know, there were, there were, there were two guys that just saved my butt. And, uh, you know, one of them would pressure me all the time. You need to hang out with the group. You need to hang out with the group right now. You can't go home. And, uh, and I would sometimes just hang out to shut them up. But it worked. You know, I learned how, to, you know, how young people, like, interact with society without drinking, And, you know, the other guy would call me every weekend and we'd go hike up mountains or float rivers or dirt bike or, you know, do that whole outdoorsy Montana thing. And um, I'm really grateful for that. I'm very, very grateful to have, you know, had people keep me busy like that because I wouldn't have not have done that on my own. And there were women in that group. I just didn't tend to notice them right away. Um, (laughs) you know, throughout that year, you know, it's like I'm going out, and I'm doing things, and I'm having fun, but every time I'm alone, I'm not okay, because I don't have a program. I'm just not drinking, and, um, you know, I've got my little triage of things that makes me okay. I cut myself, or I stop eating and exercise a lot, or I eat a lot and throw up, and I was just alternating through all of those, and, um, but life was getting worse. They just weren't fixing me, and, and at the end of that year, I remember I wanted to die again. And, um, and this time I looked down at that dog, and I, you know, I thought it would be – and I told myself that I would kill him and then I'd kill myself because that's, that's better for him. And, um, you know, for me, my animals are my world, and that is the worst thought, you know, without doubt that I've ever had in my life. And that's what – that caught my attention, and that's what got me to, you know, to get a sponsor and to work the program – and the sponsor, the sponsor that I got is probably was probably the best sponsor for young people you could ever dream of finding. She, um, you know, she had the two basic rules of sponsorship. You know, we meet once a week, and I either call her every day, see her in a meeting, or just see her around town—some contact. And um, you know, I couldn't—I just would not call people, and so I would drive into town from Clancy almost every day to go to meetings where I knew she would be, which got me more involved in AA, or just to show up and knock on her door. And, um, and that worked. And you know, and when we had sponsorship, that whole face-to-face thing, I don't talk. So she kind of figured that out, and we'd go through the book for a while, and then we'd go on errands, her errands. And sometimes I don't think she had errands. I think she made them up. <laughs> um, <laughs> she, alf- she had to go to Walmart an awful lot. <laughs> And it was just something about being in the car or wandering through Walmart where I would just, open up, and I would just tell her everything. As long as I, I this was like something about the eye contact. I Don't have to look at her. Um, and she got me, she got me into my fourth step. And uh, oh, another good, another great thing about her was that all the young people hung out at her place. We all would go swimming or boating or you know just whatever. And um, and she had a porch that we called the stoop. And, uh, you know, we would just, we would just sit there all night long, like a bunch of rednecks or something, <laughs> and we'd just talk. And it became such a comfortable place that, you know, I remember being out with people, and we'd be starting to get kind of uncomfortable, or one of us would want to drink, and we would all just run and go sit on her stoop, whether or not she was home. She was at work, and we were still sitting on her stoop feeling better, and, um... But she also did get me into the steps and, and the fourth step. Um, I sat on my fourth step for, for a good year. And, uh, you know, it wasn't because I don't want to look at myself. Like, I, I, I'm pained by what a bad person I am because I'm the depressive, I hate myself, everything's my fault, you should hate me too type. So for me it was, it's just so boring. It's so boring to write the same thing over and over But, you know, she set a a fifth step date, and and so one of my character defects is, I want to look good. And so it comes, you know, it works out well sometimes because I want to look good, so I'm going to get my fourth step done real fast so I'm ready. And, um, you know, we did the fifth step, and I kind of figured, you know, she's going to think I'm slimy. I've never done anything, like, big, but it's just those sneaky, underhanded little things that are just make you look down on people who do them and, and I figured she'd tell a few stories of her own and say no 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 you know I think you're fine and, and, um, and then walk out the door going oh my god and uh, you know I can't get in her head but I don't think that was the case um, you know I, I got some relief from my fist step. I've never had the pink cloud but I went into my fist step feeling really crappy and I felt came out of it feeling just a little bit cruddy and that's good <laughs> that works <laughs> and um, you know and I got to my nine step I don't remember if I started my nine step with, with that first sponsor or if it was with the sponsor I have now but you know doing, going through those amends that whole I want to look good really helped again because the bigger man admits he's wrong and apologizes and man I want to be the bigger man <laughs> And, uh, you know, so that would that would drive me with some of the amends, not all of them, but some of them, just because I'm showing up and I'm feeling better than you, and look at me apologize. And I would just, <laughs> I just really had to be careful with the arrogance showing. <laughs> um, but it worked, you know, it got me through, and, and I, you know, I went into, I went back home to Chicago to make financial amends, and... Um, I was not happy about that, you know, because I was figuring, you know, city people aren't quite as nice as small-town people. We glare at each other and don't make eye contact. And I was just terrified that I'm going to go in there and I'm going to get the ugh from these people. And, uh, you know, I didn't. I had a, just a v- variety of different experiences. You know, one, the guy said, you know, you may for- your sins are forgiven, you may walk free. And then... <laughs> And then the next one, you know, made me come into this small back room where the sec- where he was glaring at me, and two security guards were both leaning on the ra- leaning on the wall, glaring at me as he, you know, photocopied my driver's license. And I am not welcome in Meijer Superstores anymore. <laughs> um, I had, you know, one of the really cool ones um, when I went back to make the amends was that. I went into this one grocery store and of course they always get the manager to do this and I told him you know I stole this and I want to pay you for it and he wanted to talk about the 12 steps and um and I never got the impression once that it was because he needed them but you could just see that there was some something about the 12 steps was really touching his heart like somebody he really loved you know had some experience in the 12 steps programs um and so it was just neat talking with him and just talking about the steps and about the program and not about myself and how I work the steps. Um, I think my more embarrassing one was, was one of the one that I made when I went in there and I went up to the girl and I said, yeah, you know, I stole this much money. I think I'd like to pay for it. And she just kind of looked at me for a minute and she's like, you stole from me from us five years ago and you want to pay us? And I said, Yes. And she just looked at me for another minute. She goes, oh, my God, Greg, come here. you got to hear this. (laughs) 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 And every employee that was, like, right in the general area, I had to make an amends to each one because they all thought it was so funny. And so I made, you know, four or five amends that day, and they still took my money. (laughs) But, um... You know, I don't know if I can necessarily say that my soul feels lighter because I've made financial amends. I mean, my, my wallet feels lighter. But it's just there's something about knowing that I've done it. And I, I don't know. You know, I, I haven't analyzed it a whole lot more than that, which is one of the few things I have not analyzed in this program. Um, you know, AA has taught me that I can be okay with me. That something fundamentally inside has changed. That I'm, I'm not lying to you today. And it's not because I don't want to make amends or lying is bad. It's because I care about our relationship. I don't want a relationship built on lies. It's, I don't, I don't, it doesn't do it for me. Um, you know, today, I don't steal. Because, you know, it's not that I've hit a bottom with stealing. I haven't. I've never been caught. I wouldn't feel very bad if I took this microphone right now.
1: <laughs> but,
0: you know, I, I just don't do it because it doesn't necessarily feel right. That's not, that's not who I want to be. Um, you know, I get to be okay with myself. And, and AA has not told me that I have to be okay with you or you or you or situations, that there are intolerable situations out there. I, uh, you know, I just, uh, finalized a divorce recently, very recently, and, um, we were married for four years, and, you know, and things were going on in our house, and over those four years, you know, I very slowly had to come to accept that my husband was engaging in activities when I wasn't around that absolutely devastated me, and, um, you know, I just came home and it was the last straw one night, and I filed for divorce pretty soon thereafter. And uh, I didn't think it would be anywhere near as hard as it's been, because I've been talking with my sponsor about divorce for over a year, and um, you know, we'd gone through all these different, you know, thoughts about it and aspects about it. You know, from the the one that matters the least. You know, what's going to happen to me financially. So the one that matters the most is I'm letting go of the man that I love more than anything because I just will not tolerate the behavior anymore. And, uh, you know, the depression that hit was was unlike anything I have ever experienced. It made, you know, all my alcoholic depressions or my depressions from bipolar disorder just feel like nothing it, uh, you know, it just brought me to my knees, and, and I didn't consider myself a big drinking risk at that time because I knew alcohol could not come close to solving this pain. And, and the solution that I saw that, that was the best you know, is my own death. And um, that's a bad place to be when, when the only thing that seems like it'll really fix things is dying. Um, you know, it was, again, it was my dogs that saved my ass um you know i was looking at them and there was one of them in particular that there was no home that i felt would be good enough and and my dogs will not keep me sober they will, you know they'll never be able to do that but what they've done for me you know as other things have done is they they give me that extra external push to get into this program and to get you know more active and and i would call my sponsor more and sometimes i was calling just to cry and i'd call my mom and just cry and um you know, what has happened is, you know, I, I, I was going to more meetings and I was, you know, just more involved. And, and I would keep trying to show up in the different activities I had in life. And, and some of them failed, you know, you know went downhill. My, my literature store commitments for the district definitely went down. People would call me about a book or something, and I wouldn't call them back for two weeks. But, you know, I was trying to show up. And, and somewhere through that, it started to get better. And, um, you know, today I have more good days than I have bad days. And it's not a, I want to die anymore. It's just, you know, on those bad days, it's just, oh, my God, this really hurts. Um, and each day that goes by, though, it gets easier. And, and I, think, <clears throat> I think that could be misinterpreted, um, you know, as not being hopeful, you know, that here I am with eight years of sobriety saying that I wanted to die. But, you know, for me, I think there's a lot of hope in that. In that I have walked through my worst nightmare and I am still sober, I am still alive, and I haven't been wreaking alcoholic, you know, whirlwinds of destruction on people around me. And um, I think that's a good deal. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with that. Um, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but. Since that's kind of a bummer to end this uh talk on a less of a bummer note, you know. <laughs> um, you know, today in my life it's just different. You know, my, my mom and dad, they want me around more. You know, they want to spend quality time together and have me call more. And I I mean, I I call and visit with them a lot. And um, you know, my sister and her husband, you know, ask me to come out to their house and have dinner. And um, people don't Look away when I enter the room. Um, I've got four very happy, healthy dogs that are the light of my life. And through it all, last weekend I picked up my diploma from Carroll College. (laughs) I graduated with a biology degree and uh, with honors. But. Um, I'm still waiting to see what my diploma looks like. Cause I, I went to, it's a liberal arts school, but it's a science degree. So I'm really hoping my diploma says, Kira Amdal, BS. <laughs> so, wherever he is in the room, I'd like to th- thank Brian for asking me to speak. And uh, the speaker selection committee, it's truly an honor. A, I can't even say what an honor it was to be up here. Thank you.